All right. Uh, Matthew chapter 3 is where we are today. We started the Gospel of Matthew, finished up Revelation, of course, and we're moving on. Uh, also, the plan, I mentioned this before, that starting in the fall, hoping to have a, a midweek service. I'm not sure if that's going to be Wednesday or Thursdays. We're going to kind of keep going back and forth. But we're going to start studying the Old Testament on Wednesdays. So we'll start in Genesis and start working our way through. And we'll continue uh, in the New Testament on Sundays. So last week, we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 2. Actually, Matthew chapter 1 and 2. I'm hoping I messed with some people's Christmas traditions with both of those. Because they're, they're scripture, areas of Scripture we usually just typically go over at Christmas time. And then there's a lot of our traditions and things that we've kind of lumped in there. And, and so looking at the Scriptures of Matthew chapter 1 and 2 has clarified, I hope, some things. Um, we talked a lot about the wise men, about how they showed up after Jesus was born. And uh, it may have been as soon as six months. Some people figure it at that. But it's closer, I believe, to two years um, because it says that Herod determined the time from the wise men, and that's how he decides that all the children in Bethlehem will die that are two and under, right? So they had been on this journey for years, uh, which shows a huge amount of commitment of the wise men. It's not like these guys are just going across the street. They had been on this journey, and it was typical I shouldn't say typical, but it wasn't unheard of for bands of these wise men from the east to go and do these explorations for the truth. Uh, this is one case. There was another case a few years after this. A group of, I think it was six men, came from the east and came to Rome. And that was their whole point, is that they wanted to take in truth and understanding. And uh, so, again, these were seeking the one who had been born in Judah, who would be the king, or Judea, who would be king of the Jews. And we talked about how they may have known that the word of the Messiah had spread far beyond Israel. Uh, and wherever the Jewish people were, there was the hope of the Messiah was there with them. And so even to the far east, there were Jewish people living in that region of the world, from exile to just travel and trade, and had taken to uh, the known, every part of the known world. And so the understanding that this king was going to be born was pretty much everywhere. Now, not everybody took it as serious as these guys did in order that when they saw this star, it started their journey. Um, and as we see that when they got to Bethlehem, it was far more than a star. You know, there's a lot of ex- re- people trying to explain it away with, oh, it was a comet. It was a visible supernova. It was the convergence of Saturn and Jupiter and Jupiter's moons. And you know what? Maybe that started it, but that's not what finished it. When they go to Bethlehem, the star sits above the very house that Jesus is in. And they go there and they give their gifts. Again, traditionally we think of three wise men, may have been more than that. It's just that there were three gifts given. Now, Matthew makes this big jump. So we go from Jesus being under two years old in Bethlehem to now jumping completely forward in chapter 3 of Jesus about to begin his earthly ministry. And uh, we're going to look a lot at John the Baptist here in chapter 3. So let's pray and uh, we'll get into it. God, again, we are so grateful for your word and we don't want to miss out on a thing. I pray you'd give us ears to hear, give us hearts to receive, uh, that we would be changed, that your word would be the good seed planted in good soil and, uh, and that we would bear good fruit. 
God, we want to be a blessing to you, and we want to be a blessing to the, the lives we're connected to. And we just pray that you would do that work in us today as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the regions surrounding the Jordan went out and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. John the Baptist, he's one of, I know I say this a lot about a lot of Bible characters, but John is one of those guys I'm looking forward to sitting down and having a cup of coffee with when we get to heaven. And just like, man, tell me, just give me the whole story. I want to hear all of it. Because he is one of the most interesting characters in the Gospels. I mean, of course, apart from Jesus, the disciples are interesting too. But John's like this wild man that seems to come out of almost nowhere. And, and we all have our own pictures. I picture him like this crazy, wild-eyed, crazy hair. Again, I think <laughs> the, uh, the Chosen got John pretty close. Creepy John is what some of the disciples call him, because he's just, he's just wild. And, and, I, and I believe that is, is pretty accurate as we, we look at John in the Gospels. Um, he is the son of Zachariah and Elizabeth, and you can read that story in Luke chapter 1, where Luke gives us a lot more detail about John coming on the scene. In fact, it's where his Gospel starts, is talking about the importance and, and the role of John the Baptist. Uh, his birth was announced to his father, Zechariah, there in the temple. Zechariah was a priest, and he went to offer incense. And the priest tells him, Zechariah, man, you're going to have a son. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And, and Zechariah's like, no, I'm not. I'm too old. He's like, oh, yeah? Then you won't be able to speak until he shows up, which is a funny thing. I always laugh. I don't know why I find that so funny. But so this miraculous announcement that John is on his way to his elderly parents and that he is going to be the forerunner or the predecessor, the one leading, blazing the trail for the Messiah. And this is all spoken by the angel. His parents were aware of it and that they knew uh, that Mary was going to be the one. That when she shows up and Mary and Elizabeth meet, there's this beautiful thing in, in the Gospel of Luke where Mary starts singing this song of praise that's is phenomenal. But um, John's role, again, and he knew it from as early as he could remember, I'm sure, was to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, one interesting thing, I mentioned it, but I think it's something we go over kind of quickly. Zechariah, his father, was a priest and was given the honor to serve in the temple, which makes John a priest. So not only was he just this crazy wild man out in the desert, he had all the rights and the station of a temple priest, but distance himself completely from that on purpose. Not from the calling of a priest, not from the responsibilities of the priest, but from everything that the priesthood had become in that day. And he separates himself to be different 
in every way, from the way he dressed to what he ate. And I know we look at that and go, he ate locusts? (laughs) Yes. But the idea is that he chose to be a common person. He did not wear fine attire and robes with the priests, especially the priests of the temple. They were decked out in the finest all the time. They ate the best food. They lived in the best houses. They had money. And all of these privileges that came to the priest. And John went, I won't do any of that. And he wears common clothes. He eats the cheapest food, bugs, great price on bugs. Because he doesn't want to be seen as one of those hypocrites. The outward appearance of righteousness. but Nothing but dead men's bones on the inside. And it's important we also understand that in John's day, the work of the priests, the work of the the Pharisees especially, had overcomplicated everything. That while the Old Testament has a lot of law and a lot of things to observe, they had taken that law and they had expanded it out into over 300 books of more law on top of the original law, so there was more law more rules. And, and they came up with all the exceptions when you didn't have to follow those rules. And only they were the ones that knew the difference. And, and it was just so crazy and complicated that it made the Word of God confusing and out of reach to the common person. That the law was something that was like, well, I understand part of it, but I don't know when it always works and doesn't work. And, and, and I don't know what the will of God is. And I don't know what the purpose of God is. I don't know what God wants from me. Very common. And so here's this crazy priest out in the desert, out in the, by the Jordan, and his message is simple, and it is powerful. He's not arguing with people about the law. He's not arguing with people about heritage. He's not arguing with people about how to dress or what they should look like or how they... His whole message is repent. Repent. That's a word we don't use a lot in our society, and I think... Even in the church, we've got some misunderstandings about how it's defined, what it means. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people that think that repentance is really uh, just feeling super bad. Man, I feel so guilty about that. I'm so ashamed about that. I shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have done that, whatever. That's not repentance. In fact, the Bible talks about that that's worldly sorrow that leads to death. When it's all emotion and it's all hype and I feel so ashamed, if that's as far as it goes, it's not going to do anyone any good. And it will lead to death. King Saul is a great example of that, right? When King Saul went after David multiple times, many times he would repent with a worldly sorrow. Oh, I'm so sorry, my son David. Come home in tears and what looked like humility even before all the armies of Israel and just so, so sorry. But he never changed. Godly repentance may not have a lot of emotion to it, but it changes our direction. It's a choice. And really, as, as John is delivering this message, he isn't saying, you guys need to feel super bad about all the things you've done wrong. He's saying, no, you need to change your mindset. You need to change direction. That's really all repentance means. Is the direction I've been going, I admit, is wrong. And I turn around and go the other way, right? It's 
It's an action, but it's also a mindset that establishes that action. And again, that's not a word that gets used a lot in our society. I think if there's a message that is lacking the church at large, it is repent. That it has been so watered down. And we know this, right? I mean, this isn't a shocker to us that, that it, a lot of churches has went, hey, let's not talk about that whole repentance stuff. Let's not talk about sin. Let's not talk about hell. Let's just talk about good stuff. We'll talk about encouraging things. We'll talk about how people can be successful and how people can have good families. Let's talk about being socially engaged in our communities. And let's talk about social issues. And, and we'll all just be good people. Again, that, that doesn't get us anywhere. It turns church into a social group. And that's all. In some ways, in John's day, while it wasn't so much about being a social group, they had their own distractions that were coming their way. It was mainly by the law and the rules and the traditions and all those other things. And the Pharisees and the scribes had made such a mishmash of it that it was hard for the normal person to know the difference between what was law, what was opinion, what was tradition, and what was important in all of it, right? And so these distractions, whether in our day or in theirs, they can only go so far. And this is something, as I was studying this, I found myself being very encouraged. When you look at the environment and the history of what was going on in John's day, when Jesus comes on the scene, and what's happening in our society, there, there's, an, I think, an interesting parallel. Because in John's day, they had the distraction of the law and all these other things, and they had the priests with all of their their theatrics and, and what you could say and what you could do and who you could talk to and how you should dress and all these rules. And then this guy comes on the scene with a simple message of repent. And verse 5 says, all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all the regions around the Jordan came out. Again, keep in mind, the people that are hearing this message are Jewish people of Israel around or in the area of Jerusalem. So they had the best teachers. They had all the history. They had everything that you could possibly want if you wanted to understand the things of Scripture in that day. The problem was it was all being run through the filter of the Pharisees. Now what you really need is more rules in your life because you people are too unhinged. You need us to explain all the things that you need to do in order to be pleasing to God. And they've been doing this for a long time. And this is what I mean by those distractions only last so long. Because with all of that available, with all of that happening, everybody in Jerusalem and around Judea and the area of the Jordan realizes, I'm still empty. I'm still missing something. I've got everything that they say I'm supposed to have, and it's not enough. I'm still broken inside. And this is the same parallel I see in our generation, especially in the United States today. There's something really cool. I am so excited about what I'm seeing in the youth in the United States lately. Uh, over the last few years, but it seems like it's growing and getting from college age down to high school age, somewhere around in there. And they get a lot of heat, right? Everybody's like got their millennial jokes and millennials this, millennials that. But there's something that millennials are doing that is, and not all of them, 
But it's a movement that's starting that when it comes to the things of the church and the things of the Lord, they are no nonsense. They're over the hype. They're over the distractions. They're over all the empty promises of health, wealth, and success. They're over all the traditions that are not scriptural. And I've talked to several people that are like, I just want to know about Jesus. I don't want anything else. I don't want the stuff of big church. I don't want the stuff of little church. I just want Jesus. And I want to be around people that want to be closer to Jesus. And they're asking hard questions, but they're good questions. I love it. Because all those empty promises and all those distractions that have been going on in the church at large for years have all started to wear off. And again, people are going, I'm missing something. This social club that I've grown up in is missing something. And I want Jesus. And I believe it's the same thing there in John's day. And the proof of it is, is that people start coming out in droves. People are going, well, I don't know what this guy's about, but he's got the message I need to hear. And again, that message is simple. Repent. It's not a flowery message. It's not a message that's really eloquent. It's not fluffy. It's not all the things that we find so easily and so readily available today. It's not politically correct. This crazy guy without fine clothes, without extravagance, and his message is basically you are all sinners who have been going in the wrong direction and you need to turn around. See, I think that's the difference in having a soft-selling gospel. Because people literally are going, saved from what? What do I need a Savior for? What is there to be saved from? What do I need to repent from? I'm a good person, right? John's message is, nobody's good. Everybody's a sinner. We all need to repent. And frankly, our time is short. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And everyone comes out to John and goes, you're right. You're right. I'm missing something. I need to change. My time is limited. Now, there's a couple other things that are unique here that I think are worth pointing out. First of all, baptism wasn't something new to Israel, but they'd never seen it like this before. That really, this baptism, the closest thing to it, was when a Gentile wanted to be adopted into Israel. They would go through this whole process. Um, And there was a lot to it, but baptism was one part of it. And the idea was, is that you were being immersed, your old Gentile life, which they looked down on, all the filth of the Gentiles is being washed away and you're rising up new in Israel. But now John does the same baptism, but it's not for the Gentiles, it's for Israel. And so for them to go out to this public baptism, it's a huge declaration for people to make. Because what they're saying is, I'm just as lost as the Gentile. I don't know how to be saved. I don't know what this void is, right? And so it's a, it's a huge deal. And, and there's nothing like this has happened in the temple. None of this has ever happened with the Pharisees. None of this has ever happened before in Israel. Um, and the other thing that I think is interesting is, is verse 6 says, 
They were baptized by him there at the Jordan, confessing their sins. And the way this is worded, it's even a little bit clearer in the Greek that it's not that John was requiring them to confess their sins. It wasn't like they came down and he went, okay, now tell us about every horrible thing you've ever done. That this was a spontaneous reaction from each individual that they would come down to the water, again, admitting that they were wrong, knowing that something was missing, knowing that they were sinners and just as lost as the Gentiles, and they would just begin confessing their sin on their own. Man, there's something powerful about that, beautiful about that. Again, not required by John. It was just a spontaneous thing that was taking place. And it wasn't just, I am a sinner, and everyone's like, yes, us too. It was like listing it. <laughs> it was specific of what they had done. Very humbling. But I mean, that's the way we come to Jesus, right? It's humbling. It's meant to be humbling. What do I need to be saved from? My sin. I've been going in the wrong direction for a long time, and I need to admit to myself, to God, and to others, I've been wrong. And to repent is to change my direction. Away from my opinions, away from my ideas, away from this world, my sin, and toward Jesus. And this is the job that John the Baptist has. John is, is there with this purpose is to prepare the way, to lay the groundwork. And even as he points to, um, Matthew points to Isaiah, saying that this is he that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, uh, the one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That picture is something that took place uh, in the ancient world when a king was going to do a tour of his land or of his country. So if King David was like, hey, I'm going to do a whole tour next year and go around to all the villages and, and areas of Israel, they would send somebody out a year in advance, sometimes more, and they would go from town to town and go, prepare the way of the king, which meant get this road fixed and clean up this town because <laughs> the king's on his way, right? And this was something that happened on a fairly regular basis within the lifetime of a king. And so when Isaiah spoke it, it was speaking of John. This is what he's doing. He's the one going to the people going, you need to prepare the way because the king's on his, on his way. He's almost here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now verse 7 goes on. It says, But when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree, the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor 
gather his wheat into the barn and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I like John. <laughs> Not any gray area there, right? What John's message is, you're just like, okay, I, I know where you're coming from. And it doesn't matter how you try and word it because, you know, sometimes you'll read something in, in the Bible and you're like, now if they said this in like an angry tone, yeah, it's pretty intense. But if they said it in a happy tone, it could be, you go, it is not like that. Brood of vipers. Say it however you want it. It's still pretty intense. Now, why did the Sadducees and Pharisees come out? Uh, Matthew doesn't really tell us. Maybe they were coming out to investigate. Maybe they were coming out uh, even to be baptized. But it wasn't for the right reasons, and John knew it. And so he calls them out. um, And again, man, brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee of the wrath to come? Uh, Again, there's no nice way to say that. And the idea of wrath to come was not a new idea. The Pharisees were all about it, but it was, it was always for the Gentiles. The wrath to come is for the pagans, for the Gentiles. And we who are of Israel, we are, who are sons of Abraham, well, not us, of course, hello, we're the greatest. And they really saw themselves as being, man, the most blessed, the most, you know, loved by the Lord because they had the most stuff. Um, and so John puts them in the same category as the Gentiles. He's not saying the Gentiles are going to get off without any punishment. He's saying, look, that wrath to come you guys like to talk about, I'm telling you, you are just as in danger as the Gentiles. And who warned you anyway? Why, why are you even here? Why did you even come out to be baptized for repentance? Um, and of course, he knew it's because they weren't there for the right reasons. And he cuts off their two main reasons or the two main things, the go-tos in an argument right away. First of all, he says, therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Uh, Both of the groups that are talked about here, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, these guys were masters with their words. They were wordsmiths. And if you've ever dealt with someone like that, they're the worst, right? They they can talk you in circles and the circular logic and, and use this all, you know, whatever they got, all of their education, all of the things, and just tie you up in knots. Well, these both groups, again, the Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, they're famous for it. It's interesting, however, the Sadducees and the Pharisees hated each other. This is the first time that they start to come together is when things dealing with John the Baptist. And then after this, of course, will be the things of Jesus. But other than that, these guys were always at each other, hated each other. And so John is saying, look, I don't want to hear all your words. Don't, don't tell me why you're here or what you're about, because he knew that they could just talk their way out of it. And again, like, like anybody that's really crafty with their words and their language, they can say whatever they want. They can tear people down. They can spread gossip. They can do all kinds of destruction and belittle people. And then when you call them on it, they're like, oh, you've misunderstood. Well, that's not what I meant at all, Right? Like a good politician, they, they will never be trapped in their words. It's your fault. You've misunderstood what's going on. Of course, they're innocent in it all. And so John just cuts that off and says that bear the fruit of repentance. Bear the fruit worthy of repentance. In other words, don't tell me, show me. Don't just 
talk about good things that should be done. I want to see it in your life. I want to see your life change from the direction that it's currently on. That's not an unreasonable thing to ask. Um, I know that when we have somebody that goes through a hard time or, you know, maybe they fall into sin or they, they give into temptation or whatever it might be, we want to believe that they have repented. But honestly, it's okay to go, I want to see some fruit from that. I want to see the change in your life, and I want to help you with that. I want to be there for you, hold, hold you accountable, pray for you, whatever you need, but there should be a change because when true repentance takes place, there is change. It, there is good fruit born in our lives. It's a hard process. It's a long process, but John just cuts him off. I don't want to hear your words. I want to see your actions. And then he goes to the second thing that they would always hold to, that they were sons of Abraham. They were of Israel. Do not think, in verse 9, he says, to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Their heritage had gone far beyond pride. It wasn't just like, oh, I like where I came from. I like my history and my heritage and what I'm about, my my family, my legacy. I love all that stuff, and I do. Uh, You know, I've talked about my trip back to Ireland and getting to track down some of the things of my family. I love that kind of stuff. But this has gone so far beyond that they actually believe that their heritage was their salvation. That because of they were of Israel, and of course the keepers of the law, of course, they're in no danger of, of wrath or hell or any of that stuff. And John again warns them, yes, you are. And he gives them a few really powerful pictures. And I think they're, they're kind of lost on us a little bit because we don't uh, deal with things like they did in their day. We understand them on the surface, but it's important, I think, that we get these pictures that are given to us because it's a chilling warning to anybody caught up in religion, right? That Whether that's the scribes, the Pharisees, or whether it's us today, if it's just about filling our time in a social club and all that stuff, we are, we're going the wrong direction. And we can't think for a moment that, that we would not be in danger if that's all we're here to do is, is be a part of a social club. So he gives these pictures. Um, and the first, really, well, they all warn of this coming judgment, but it's not going to be just a small correction. It's not going to be just a little bit of a pruning of the branches. He says the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Again, it isn't just some little thing. It's not just going to be an uncomfortable season. It is black or white. He says, you're bearing fruit or you're not. And if you're not, you're going to be cut down. And I really believe that's a reference to the entire pharisaical order. It applies individually, but I believe that the fruit that the pharisaical order, which actually had a great beginning, if you study the history of how they started, man, they loved the word of God. They wanted to bring people back to it, but now they've gone off the deep end. And the... And the the word to them is what you're doing, it's no, there's no way it can be saved. The pharisaical order, the axe is already laid to the root of it. It's coming down. And that we as individuals must bear fruit. And again, it's, it's very much now is the time to repent, to change our direction, to bear good fruit. Because he says, he who's coming after me is mightier than I. Now, again, this is one of those things. I, I would love to jump in the time machine and go back and watch the whole scene take place. Because to me, it's so powerful that John is there at the river telling of the coming of the Messiah. 
and preparing the way, letting people know. But I don't think most people believe that the Messiah was going to show up. <laughs> They're being baptized, and, and John's talking about, hey, the one that comes after me, man, I can't, I can't even carry his sandals. He's, he's so awesome. He's, he's everything. And there he is, right? I mean, it was like that on that day. And so for these Pharisees, who knows, they're, they're thinking, oh, this is down the road, this guy, whatever he's talking about. But he's letting them know, whether they believe it or not, it doesn't matter. He's telling them, again, their time is short. And he's coming. John's been the spotlight of what's taking place in this little section. And at this time in Israel, everyone was looking to John. Is he, is he the Messiah? Is he the prophet? Is he somebody that, you know, we should really be considering as, as a leader? And John goes, no, I'm none of those things. I'm just getting the, the, the way ready for the one that has been promised. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That is a verse, a saying that I've always wanted to wrap my mind around more and understand more. But I tell you what, it just gives me chills every time I read it. We know that because of what Jesus did, we have been baptized with the Holy Spirit when we come to him. It means to be immersed in, empowered by, supernaturally empowered. But it also is speaking of that we become the temple of the Holy Spirit, which never took place in the Old Testament. That if Moses were to show up today, and we'd be like, man, Moses, tell me all about what it was like when you poured the Red Sea, and man, when the Lord did this, and when the Lord did that, and he's like, no, 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 I don't want to talk about any of that. I want to know what it's like to have the Holy Spirit living in you. You tell me about that. Because he didn't have that. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And fire simply speaks of the fire that refines us and purifies us. That comes from His Word. It comes from our difficulties, our trials. It comes from the work He does in our lives, right? Purifying us, drawing us closer to Him. Then the other picture that He gives, and I think this is the one we tend to miss uh, or misunderstand, not really fully appreciate, is where he says that uh, his winnowing um, fan is in his hand and that he will winnow out the, the chaff and the wheat. This was something that took place, you know, when they would bring in wheat. And, you know, since we don't, we don't even grow wheat anywhere on the Big Island, it's not a, a crop that happens here. But growing up on the farm, occasionally we would have like a section of wheat or we would have, you know, we'd have fields dedicated to different things. And there's something interesting. So wheat and chaff look identical. They look exactly the same. That if you look out over a field, you can't tell the difference until the harvest. At the harvest, all of the wheat bows down. Because the little top of a wheat head, there's multiple grains and husks, and well, a true stalk of wheat, all those little husks have a kernel of wheat inside. The chaff is empty. It has the husk, there's just nothing there. And so the wheat is heavy and it bows down and the arrogant chaff stands up straight and proud, right? And the way they would deal with it, because you couldn't go up to every single head of wheat and go, mm, this is a keeper. No, nope, that was bad. You couldn't, it's too much. So they bring it all in. They harvest all of it. They bring it into this place of, uh, of winnowing and, and they would begin to throw it up in the air with rakes. Now on a good day, you'd have a little bit of wind, Right? And so anything light would be carried away and anything heavy would fall. 
You'd save the wheat, the chaff would blow kind of into a pile off to the side. No wind, you'd use a fan. And so people would stand with fans and they'd create wind and they'd throw this wheat up in the air and then the chaff would be separated, right? It's an amazing picture of how the Lord will sort out all of mankind, especially all of those in the church, all of those that claim to be spiritual, all of those claim that, that again, like the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and all these people that claim to be the, the spiritual leaders, he's telling them, you're going to get sorted out. And the Lord knows how to do that. Again, there's a time limit. He's saying the time is now. His winnowing fan, it's in his hand. It's started already is the idea. There's an urgency to it. And again, there has to be an urgency to some degree to repent. What good is a message to go, hey, look, you have all of the time in the world, but you should repent. Um, yeah, I'll get around to that, right? There's an old story. This is just completely off the top of my head, so I'm probably going to butcher this story. Made-up story. The devil and his generals were in hell talking about how to deceive mankind. And he says, give me some ideas, boys. And the first one says, let's tell them that there's no heaven. devil thinks about it and goes, well, that's not going to work. Because people will look around, they'll see the stars, they'll see the creation, they'll know there's a God, therefore if there's a God, he has a kingdom, they'll know that there's a heaven. Another guy says, another demon says, let's tell them there's no hell. Thinks about it, eh, kind of the same thing. If God exists, his kingdom exists, and he's righteous, then they're going to figure out, there's the reverse to that, there has to be a place of punishment. And then finally a demon says, let's tell them that there's no hurry. And the devil says, that'll work. Hey, if there's no hurry, there's no urgency to repent, people won't repent. John's message, man, the Lord is coming. He is here. The axe is to the root of the tree. His winnowing fan is in his hand. Today is the day to repent. Today is the day to change direction. Urgency to it. And that the Lord knows how also to sort those out. That say they're his that aren't, that look just like the wheat but aren't. He knows how to sort it all out. Now verse 13 says, But when he saw... Oh wait, no, that's verse 7. Here we go. Okay. Verse 13. And then Jesus came from Galilee to John of the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit, permit it to be so, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. And when he had baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Mm, man. Again, I picture myself being one of the guys there at the Jordan, right? And it didn't matter if you just got baptized, you're just hanging out, or you're in line. And again, John's message is, Hey, the Messiah is coming. The one that's coming after me, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals or carry them. And there he is. And Jesus comes down into the water and goes, you should baptize me. 
And John's like, what? <laughs> and I, again, I just, I, I can't imagine how weird and awkward and bizarre that must have been for John going, you have got to be kidding me. Understand that John and Mary, Jesus' mother, are probably the only people in the world that have an idea who Jesus really is. It wasn't common knowledge. John's been out in the desert and preparing for the Messiah, and then he comes to him, and John is like, no way, you should baptize me. And Jesus, his answer, it, it satisfies John, but still, you know, thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? What righteousness needed to be fulfilled? Well, it's not that Jesus needed to be baptized because he had sin, right? And this is something I think it's important because I've, I've had people ask me this over the years, why was Jesus baptized? What was the point of all of it? And I think the mistake we make is we see it as being like this single lone event that Jesus just decides, I should just get baptized, you know, so people know that I'm cool or whatever, you know, who knows. But we see it as this one-time thing. But really, this is the beginning of an ongoing pattern that continues all the way through Jesus' ministry, where he chooses to be connected with us, Right? And, and the times that he really clearly makes this choice to go beyond what's required, he didn't need to be baptized. But he also didn't need to choose the middle class or lower class guys to follow him, right? He chose fishermen and zealots and a tax collector. He didn't choose priests, Sadducees, those guys. He chose to touch the man with leprosy to heal him. He didn't need to touch him. But when he did, anybody that saw that would have went, oh, he's unclean. Well, except then the guy was healed, so is he unclean? Right? <laughs> and you see Jesus going out of his way, even inviting himself to people's house, sinners and tax collectors, hey, I'm coming to your house for dinner tonight. He didn't need to do that either. Every single one of these events was him saying, I care about you. I'm not ashamed to be identified with you, connected to you. I want people to know your mind. He came to seek and save that which was lost. Right? And he was not ashamed to call them brethren. And, and this is all part of it. The baptism is the beginning. But I also think it's very interesting, and this is something I've been chewing on for a while now because I want to understand it more, that understand that his, his ministry on earth is marked by two events. It begins with being associated with sinners in baptism, and it ends with being associated with, with sinners in crucifixion. Both of them are a connection where he's counted among sinners. It's powerful that he's going, this is why I've come, and this is who I am, this is what I'm about. And every single one of these things, the Pharisees and the religious self-righteous would look at with disdain and go, no, that's horrible, that's wrong, that's yuck. And Jesus said, no, that's why I've come, right? In ch chapter 1, Matthew makes the point that he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. This is God with us, connected to us, identified to us as one of us, yet completely without sin. 
The second reason for his baptism is for this testimony. Not that Jesus needed this testimony. Again, this is for John. This is for the others that were there. Then in verse 16, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove, and his Father from heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I think if there had been any doubt in John's mind, and we don't know there there is. He he's, seems solid all the way through. At that moment, he'd be like, whew, I was right. It is him. You know? <laughs> but how powerful. Man, Jesus comes out. John's like, oh, I'm super uncomfortable with this. Okay, I'll baptize you because you asked me to. And, and even when Jesus says, permit this, it's the idea of you've got to trust me in this, John. Just trust me. Permit it. You, you don't need to understand it. Just permit it. Trust me that this is for a good reason. And then he brings Jesus up. <laughs> the Holy Spirit descends, and God speaks from heaven. Okay, that was a good reason. <laughs> you seem to know what you're doing. I'm going to keep listening to you. In all of this, I think to us, again, the example of John the Baptist is such a simple example that sometimes we roll over a little too quick. Because we need to understand, and this is for every single one of us. It isn't just for me. It isn't for just the missionary or an evangelist or whatever. It's for every single one of us that John's job that he was given is now ours. Again, not to overcomplicate things. I, I really believe that that's part of our calling. It's one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is when somebody comes to me and goes, look, I've heard about this about church, I've heard this about Jesus, and then what they have is this big list of rules. And just be able to go, none of that's in the Bible. Let me tell you what Jesus said, right? And just making it simple. That the message that John had was, we've got to change our direction. We are all broken inside. The Bible calls it sin. And we have got to turn away from that and toward Jesus. We are sinners in need of a Savior, all of us. That's a simple message. And it is the message given to us. Again, not to overcomplicated, not to get people distracted with any other thing, to keep that message as simple as, as it can be because it's so beautiful. And if we change our direction, if we repent, and a whole new life waits for us in Him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.